Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. For many, having a baby is one of the most powerful and natural things to do in the world. But for others, it's a huge challenge that takes determination, courage, and a lot of patience. In this week's Reset the Podcast, I talk to Marcella Collins, founder and managing director of Prompt Marketing. She shares openly with me the journey she and her wife, Maggie Alfonsi, MBE, have gone through to have their baby, Artie, and now Marcella's current pregnancy. Marcella talks about the joy of their first child carried by Maggie, and then the despair she felt when she was unable to conceive herself. The challenge of rounds of IVF and the loneliness she experienced following on from her own miscarriage. She also openly discusses what it was like to be a gay professional rugby player and the transition for her into being a successful entrepreneur. In this episode, Marcella and I really hope to try and normalise conversations around miscarriage, loss and motherhood. She is an amazing inspiration as a mother, a gay woman, a wife, an entrepreneur, and most importantly, a wonderful human being. If you are struggling with any of the topics we cover today or need some professional help, please see the resources in the link below. And if you enjoy the conversation, please share it with your colleagues and your friends. Thank you. Marcella, how are you? I'm very well, Suki. How's your Friday going? Well, I'm actually quite glad it's a Friday. Um, and I'm going to the theatre tonight, so that always makes me very excited. Oh, I'm jealous. What are you seeing? To kill a mockingbird. And it's been very difficult to get tickets. And it, they were part of a birthday present for me. And they've had to be, we've had to put it off a couple of times. So I am very excited. I just was rereading the reviews last night. So I think it's going to be a very good evening. I'm very jealous. I honestly can't remember the last time I went to the theatre, I'm ashamed to say. I think having a young child takes any evening fun out of <laughs> out of view. But um, yeah, it's definitely on my, my wife's and I to-do list. Get to London to the theatre soon. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, completely. And, you know, you have time for that in the future, don't you? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, so we've got we've got quite a lot of things to talk about because I want to talk about um, well, you and your wife. I'd like to talk about a little bit about um, childbirth and some of the challenges around that because those are both areas that we don't talk about an awful lot. Um, and I want to talk about you as a businesswoman and the kind of journey that you've been down as well. Because, as you know, on Let's Reset, what we like to do is to talk about the business people, but it's not just our businesses that impact our lives. 
we have to reset them over and over again because of the life that we lead. Um, and I loved being introduced to you by Ramia um, a few weeks ago because, and we're going to have Ramia on later on in the season, um, because there are a few women that are brave enough to talk quite openly about some of the things that you're beginning to have the conversation about, but not just that, to support other women. Um, and I think, you know, we've had, a, we've had a big conversation about menopause in the last year or so, which is absolutely fantastic. But I think we've talked less about um, having children, the challenges around that. So can we, can we start in that place? I know it feels like quite a straight on in there, but um, is that okay? Tell yeah. us a bit about you and where you met your partner and, and, and all of that to start with. Okay, let's start at the beginning. So um, I met my wife, Maggie, playing rugby at Saracens. She was a much better rugby player than I was, uh, but um, we built a great friendship and um, relationship and it just kind of blossomed from there. And I think sport really united us as a partnership. Um, she also worked for herself, very successful businesswoman and, and broadcaster. Um, so very inspired there. Um, and yeah, two years ago, we had our son, Artie, um, and Maggie carried. So she did the heavy lifting for our first son. Um, and now I'm carrying our second child, uh, who will be born in three months, which we are very, very excited about. Brilliant. Oh, that's so exciting. But right, that's quite a lot in an initial opening <laughs> statement. So let's go back on a couple of those things. Um, playing rugby for Saracens as a woman, um, you know, I think... It's fantastic that women are playing rugby. You know, we've seen a lot around football this year, which has been brilliant. Um, how did you get into rugby in the first place? I was at a freshers' fair at uni, and some um, some very kind of um, I don't know how, how else I can say some very vocal ladies uh, were, were at stand saying women's rugby is amazing, come and play. Never even crossed my mind. I wasn't a sporty teenager, hadn't done anything like that before, but. You know, like they always say when you go to uni, you've got to find your tribe and your people, which is very true in life as well. Um, and I just clicked with them immediately. And it it was like I found a group of women that I, I really connected with. And rugby was the byproduct kind of that, you know, we, we played a bit of rugby on the side. And then um, the more I played, I got, I got a bit better. And, and uh, one day I decided when I was playing for a local club in London that I'd take the jump and I'd actually push myself and I'd join a premiership team. And um, it was very humbling because you, you really do have to start from the bottom when you join a prem team. And um, it was nice not being a great player in that team and learning from yeah incredible athletes, many of whom are still on the international um, stage playing rugby for their countries. Wow. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, the training just to play at that level must have been phenomenal. What was it like? So when I was playing, it was very much, um, I mean, it was amateur in that, you know, they didn't have professional contracts like they do now. Um, although there was strength and conditioning support, you know, you were very much expected to go off and do that yourselves and then come to training two, three times a week and then play on the weekends. And the training itself was intense, but I think that's one of the big challenges of going from an amateur to a professional setup is that most people have to work right they still they have to do their jobs and their families whatever else they've got going on and fit in training and have that competitive mindset um so yeah it was a balance but it's really good to see now that it has evolved a lot in in that you know many players are on professional contracts there's a lot more support a lot more investment and as a result i mean i don't know if you've watched uh, women's rugby lately but 
the standard and quality of the game is phenomenal. You know, yeah. it's it's a really good product, if I'm allowed to say that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've seen since I've played and since Maggie played, um, you know, we both agree that it's just gone up and up and up. And I think that is what's generating a lot of interest. And that's what's going to be really key to its growth. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. But there are, you know, like with all sport, I think there are two areas I'm interested in your perspective on. The first one is around, um, you know, just funding. Um, you know, and we've we've heard in the last couple of weeks some of the big rugby men's companies, teams, uh, are really struggling with their finances because they just say, look, it's just not like football. We just don't have enough funding. And we know anyway, women's all women's sports in those sort of areas now are just not funded in the same way that men's are. What what can be done about that, do you think? I think with my commercial hat on, um, you know, any business knows that it has to be profitable, you know, and I think um, for women's sport to grow, it needs investment to make sure it can reach big audiences, fill stadiums, marketing, uh, which I think um, they've got a lot, lot better at. So it needs investment in order to drive the crowds and, and the revenue to be profitable and then grow from there. So I think that's happening. I think it it could certainly be accelerated. Um, and then I suppose like football clubs, you know, it's been a big shock seeing a couple of the big clubs suffering, um, especially premiership clubs. Um, it's how they're run. It's how they're governed. Um it's uh it's quite a complex issue really i mean there's there's a lot of things that need to be considered and i think what we're starting to see now is that especially at that premiership level women aren't kind of oh it's the men and we've got the women on the side and um, i'm still very much involved in saracens i was there last weekend watching um an incredible match between um saracens men and gloucester it was just nail biting and um, and what i love about them is you know when they talk about rugby, they talk about men and women very equally. You know, they're so invested in the women's game, not just in how they market the women and, and, and the investment, but all the provision that goes on in the background, all of that support, the physio, everything. You just know that the women have been truly developed to reach reach their potential as athletes and as a kind of an entity within the club. Um, so I think they're real trail, trailblazers in that respect. And it's yeah, it's uh, it, it's making sure that all clubs have the provision to do that and the kind of um, the ambition to do that as well. Yes, yes, and it and it is the ambition. I mean, I think then the other bit that uh, you know I, I've heard because I've talked to a lot of elite sports people is that transition from playing elite sport to when you have to leave, and it doesn't matter whether you have to leave you know after a really long career or whether you have to leave through injury or whether you leave because you're just actually maybe not good enough, um, that is very, very challenging, and particularly emotionally um, and from a mental health perspective, very challenging. And I just wonder if either you or Maggie uh, felt that and, and what what they did to help you, or whether it was it all about you helping yourself? I think it's a really difficult time in an athlete's life if they're played at a high level or, you know, a professional level when they do retire. And people retire for many reasons. I, I had quite a bad concussion, so I had to retire. Um, but I think as a society, we place a lot of emphasis on younger people playing sport or younger athletes. And I mean kind of people underneath 35. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
and that, and actually, I think that's a bit part of the problem. So I retired um, from rugby. I was gutted. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Found CrossFit, which is very competitive, uh, very difficult, lots of new things to learn. So I got my teeth into something new. And I think what has been really fascinating about CrossFit as, as a sport they celebrate athletes across all ages. They they really do redefine what fitness is at all ages. So, you know, the CrossFit Games this year, you're seeing people in their 60s and 70s that are fitter than anyone you will ever meet on a daily basis. And I think it's that narrative about redefining what is fitness? What is being an athlete? Is being an athlete, you know, doing one thing in your 20s? Or can you be an athlete for your lifetime? And I think women especially need to be exposed to those um opportunities and 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 be aware that there's so much out there for us at every stage in our life for us to compete and for us to enjoy i love that perspective i think that's really interesting and i know of a and we're part of my reason and, and i'm interested because because uh a friend of mine's daughter um was playing quite a high level of rugby again young you know under 35 and um sustained concussion and has had to leave. And actually, one is finding it difficult, of course, because that's what they've done all their life. And that's all they really wanted to do. But also, it felt very brutal. It felt very like, you're in, you're out. You know, there's no, oh, I'm about to retire. This is my journey. I've done this. Because of a of an injury, it's just gone. And that's yeah. it. There's no, you know, they didn't even kind of make an effort to say, well, look, let's, you know, like if you leave a business, it is a bit like a leaving. I think it's a bit like a business. If you choose to leave a business, you get a nice leaving party. If you are made redundant, you're told to leave. And in sport, it feels a bit like if you choose to leave and you've got time, you can kind of say goodbye and celebrate it. But if you get an injury, because you don't quite know what's going to happen, and then you suddenly have to go, actually, it's not going to, it's not going to work then often you don't get that closure. Is that fair? I think that's fair to say. I think it it probably varies from grassroots level versus professional. So I coach our local women's rugby team. And, you know, if someone's injured there, they'll be encouraged to come down and train in and help with coaching. They'll have a massive hug and they can cry on our shoulders. You know, we'll help them get back to where they need to be. It's, it's a different It's a different environment to be injured in. Whereas from a professional point of view, obviously those teams are focused on the winning, I mean, the, the quality of the game, the quality of the players, getting the outcomes that will get the crowds and in turn, I suppose, you know, uh, the revenue and uh, attention they need to grow. So I suppose it's a different mindset at different levels of the sport. And yes, it can feel cutthroat, I'm sure, at the top. But I suppose like a top business, you know, like you said, if you're made redundant or if you don't, you know, hit your KPIs or whatever it might be, you know, that's kind of the way it, it, it goes. And I'm not saying it's right. It just, yeah, yeah it is yeah. different when you're at the top. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I've been watching the Crystal Palace Football Club um, season where they've got um, their academy. They've done a series on Channel 4. Um, and, you know, I've interviewed the chairman there and a number of the people involved in the academy. And... You know, what struck me was they were very, very, no, they, these are very young players. So, you know, these are the under 18s. So one of the things they wanted to focus on was every person that had to leave the academy. So not the people staying and getting this amazing career, but the people they had to leave to let go. Because you, you, you get such a small percentage that make it. Giving them help and support, giving them well-being, mental health support, 
up to two years after they've left. And I think one of the things that um, I've seen in the program, I've seen at the academy and other people have, have talked to us about is just that focus is so different. Um, it was something Steve was very passionate about as a chairman, um, but I think it is quite different. And I, you know, and I'd love to see more sport, you know, look at that and, and take it really seriously. Because I think particularly when you're young, of course, it's binary. You know, you do win or lose and you're either good enough or you're not. And I get that. But it feels very harsh. And, it, and I've met so many people in adult life that never really recover and maybe a bit more help and support at that time would help them get through onto the next stage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are some organisations that are out there for athletes. LAPS is one, I know. Um, and you talked about the academy then. I know Saracens have their own uh, Saracens have their own um, school uh, as well, their mm. own academy. And I know that, you know, they have players working there and they, they're very good at kind of supporting players post-injury. But it's still very much on a club-by-club, organisation-by-organisation level. Very similar to business, isn't it? You know, um, and... Yeah. Um, yeah, I do. I agree that there is there is more that needs to be done, but hopefully they're m- much more aware of it now than they've um, been in the past. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so thank you for that. Let's move on to Maggie. So you met Maggie. Um, had you did you know you were gay? Well, not did you know you were gay? Had you overtly come out as gay? Do, were you playing rugby as a gay woman? Good question. Um, I'll be honest. I've never come out. Um, I think and I think that's a luxury for me to be able to say that um, you know I had my first girlfriend I think I was 16 um, I, I it saddens me that in society people still need to come out and identify as something to be themselves it, yeah. it is still necessary because there is you know um, it's not it's still not widely accepted especially I mean we talk about countries across the world I mean I'm just looking at home but you know, globally, uh, there's 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 a, a long way to go for for many countries. But um, even at home, you know, you still hear about people coming out and families rejecting them and all the struggles there. Um, but for me personally, I didn't I didn't come out because I didn't have to. And my parents were just like, "Yeah, you are who you are," and um, and I'm very lucky for that. Um, and you know, I've yeah, I've been with mostly women uh, most of my life. Um, but um. I, I try and steer clear of the closet analogy because we are who we are. And yeah. I, I it, it still saddens me now where, like, you know, you hear professional sports, but, oh, he's, he's come out as the first gay this or the gay that. And I think, oh, I wish we could move on from this conversation because it, it's not even newsworthy, right? Like, who we love is who we love. Like, it's, it's not even... I mean, dare I say, not even interesting a lot of the time because it's just, yeah, it's just part of us living, isn't it? I, you're so right. And um, it is, it's just, it, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? That in this day, that's what still happens. And, you know, and particularly in sport, you know, we, we see it particularly, you know, in the forces, in sport, there are certain aspects of society when it feels like it's, it's a lot of people are less able to have those conversations for whatever reason it is. And they may be able to talk about it privately, but they can't talk about it at the club or they can't talk about it at the workplace. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, as so many people, my lovely son, Sam, um, doesn't particularly identify as as gay straight or in between to be honest but 
Um, and, and, you know, when people ask me about him, like, I, I can't really tell you because he's just Sam, you know, and he might have a girlfriend, and he might have a boyfriend, and he might have somebody who's non-binary. You know, Sam will just see whoever he thinks is right for him. And, you know, he has long hair and nail varnish, but he still dresses in a suit. So, you know, he's all of those things. And I don't, I've never known him at being anything else. So I think he'd probably say the same. He's only 22. But, um, you know, I know for a lot of young people, it's very difficult. And, you know, we had Ari on the other day who uh, is is now um, non-binary and they have an extraordinary story to tell. Uh, so it, it is still very difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, and, and it, it's sad that it is still so difficult. It shouldn't be like that. And it's it's not on them. It's on how they're treated in different, you know, uh, situations within their life until that changes, until how other people perceive how we choose to live um, changes. Then, unfortunately, we are still here. Um, you actually reminded me when I was at a job years ago, somebody came up to me at a work drinks and she said, I hear you're one of us too. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? And she was like, don't tell anyone, but, you know, I'm gay and I had, I had a girlfriend for 10 years or whatever it was. And it was like we were part of some secret club. Um, and I still look back at that and think, because I've, I've always been very open about who I am, my relationships. And it still saddens me to think that there are a lot of people in the workforce that feel that they can't, you know, talk about their lives and, and you know, we say authentic selves a lot, but really is that, you know, like it's awful to think people think they've got like a secret they can't tell other people. Um, and yeah, I, you know, obviously I work work for myself now, but I'm sure that still happens. And I'm sure there's still a lot of people at work that will be terrified yes. uh, to think yes. that their colleagues might know they're gay or, you know, however they live their life. Um, yeah. She's a real shame. Yeah, yeah. But you met Maggie and this became a, a lovely relationship. Who asked who to get married? Oh, I did. I did. Um, which... Tell me about this, because I always find this fascinating when there are two women or two men, because, you know, not to say that you have to be a stereotype in one way or the other, but, you know, it, it's it's different. If, if you're both women, different things happen. So Yeah, what, it's what? great. There's no stereotypes or rules. It's brilliant. Um, and yeah. so... Maggie was working on the World Cup in Japan. She was um, out there with ITV. And like uh, a typical wag, I saw the opportunity and I flew out there with her because, uh, you know, I love rugby too. Um, and I thought, why don't I do something, you know, really good out there and I'll propose. And uh, at the time, um, we were planning to have Artie. We knew that Maggie was going to carry first. Um, and it really did feel like the right time. Now, I knew this would just take Maggie by complete surprise because, and never in a million years would you think I I propose because I haven't I've never talked about marriage, so I booked us a helicopter to fly over Tokyo. Totally forgot she hates helicopters, so she's in said helicopter saying you know a ten Hail Marys on the way up and um, yeah once we got in the sky I proposed and uh, yeah it was the shock of her life and she said yes immediately and it was wonderful and we went back and had a, a great party with lots of uh, amazing rugby legends and um it was just a really really lovely experience and um yeah oh I wish I could go back there and do it again oh, lovely and did you both wear engagement rings what happens with the rings and what happens with the dress okay so with the rings um I got us both the same engagement rings um 
uh, our actual wedding rings uh, we had custom made. Uh, we lost one of our dogs last year and we used her ashes to make our wedding rings, which is really special. Um, so we've got, um, it's, it's, they're called Ashes with Art in Brighton. They're absolutely fantastic. So they actually take the ashes and they can put it in a little like a pocket within the ring. Um, and you can do all sorts. You can integrate them within the stones or within art. And it was just a really special way to have her with us. And, um, you know, Maggie's as passionate about animals as I am. So uh, the rings, yeah, were very straightforward. Um, and the dress. So, yeah, I wore a dress. She wore an amazing jumpsuit. And we just surprised each other on the day. And luckily, we both chose the right shade of ivory because, as we know, there are many spectrums of white. And it could have gone horribly wrong, but it, it, it worked out. Oh, how lovely. Now, tell me about the babies, because so Maggie was, how did you choose that Maggie was going to have to, to carry the baby, your your baby first time? And how does that work? Yeah, so um, Maggie's a few years older than me, just made sense for her to go first. Um, we wanted, um, it, it, I mean, the sperm donor thing, anyone that's gone through uh you know the process it is like going shopping uh you, there are many companies that you can use there's lots that you can find out but in the end we actually went with a donor from our local fertility center they had their own bank as donors with very limited information which worked for us um and um yeah she uh she went through the the, the process uh to begin with and luckily yeah it was quite smooth and uh came pregnant quite quickly brilliant brilliant so that's and, and and then what happened? Um, and then we had Artie, Tornado Artie, uh, that joined us in October 2020. He's actually two this Sunday. Um, and uh, and yeah, it was um, it was brilliant. I mean, we'd had lockdown. We had the luxury of Maggie being pregnant in lockdown. So, you know, it was just such a lovely summer lying on the grass and thinking about pregnancy and getting the nursery ready and even when Artie came we were still in lockdown so we could really devote all our time to learning about this motherhood thing and what it entails and I think um anyone who's had kids will know it's a you learn on the job right and there's no one way of doing it and it's um you know there's a lot of up and downs and I think one of the things that um struck me when we had Artie was we're both mothers but Obviously, she's the biological mother. I'm the other mother. Um, and just trying to find that dynamic and really understand kind of you, there's a lot of self-reflection about your role and who you are and the type of mother you want to be. And, um, you know, I think we worked through that really well. And I'm hoping that, you know, when our next baby comes, it'll be, yeah, it'll be a, a fun adventure again. Um, and are you both mum? What, what are you both called the same thing? Uh I'm mama, she's mommy, but you kind of know when Art is saying mom, who he's, I don't know, you just hear the tone, but yeah. Um, although, oh, something mortifying happened last week. Um, me and Maggie call each other babe, right? So hi, babe, see you later, babe. Um, Artie, pick him up from nursery. Hi, babe. I was like, oh dear, I don't want your son calling me babe. Uh, you know, um, Maggie comes in the door. Hi, babe. Babe, babe, It's taken us a good week to get him to stop saying it. Um, so that that was quite funny. So, I mean, he calls us whatever he wants, essentially. But, you know. Well, if I my daughter, who was four years old, said, um, went to school, said, my mum's having a baby. And they went, really? Because I'd had Sam. Sam was 18 months, if that. And uh, she said, yes. And then I went, obviously went to school. And after a few weeks, the teacher said to me, um, I don't know, I think maybe Jazz is a bit confused, but she thinks you're having a baby. 
I went, no, 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 it's not me, it's my sister. <gasps> Jazz thinks that because she looks like my sister more than she looks like me, that really my sister is her mum and I'm just, you know, yeah. just the other person. That yeah, talking out. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> I love kids. It's just, that, I mean, it's, it's so, um, it's such a joyous journey, like being inside a child's mind, isn't it? Because they've just, they've got their own thing going on. And it, yeah, it's so unfiltered and it's so pure. And um, yeah, it's definitely been one of the, the best bits about being a parent so far, seeing his little mind develop. Yeah, it's hilarious, isn't it? Absolutely hilarious. Um, and then you decided to have another baby. And so the same, same things, did you go through the same journey with you? Yeah, more or less went through IVF with me, um, and um, yeah, I thought, all right, I'm going to give this a go. I, you know, uh, Maggie certainly made it look very easy, um, and um, yeah, I thought it'd be it'd be really nice to, to carry and have that experience, and, and and actually give back to our family as well in the same way that she has. So went through IVF, um, and I'll be honest, I kind of naively thought, oh, you know, one round and done, you know, I'll get pregnant and it'll be, you know we've got a very fertile women in our family and lots of people have had lots of children and, and because fertility isn't really spoken about um you just I don't know I just kind of assume yeah okay a round or two and off we go um first round was unsuccessful second round was successful but I had a miscarriage I think six weeks in um and I was really really shocked uh that I had a miscarriage if I'm honest I think I'd I think I probably because I'd never really spoken to anyone about miscarriage before. I didn't really know enough about it. Um, maybe I thought it happened just to women with a certain whatever. It, it kind of it it really um, it really surprised me when it did happen. And um, and you know anyone that's had a miscarriage, especially on uh, IVF meds, will know. You know you have to come off the meds, wait for your body to get back to. Um, you know having a period and so there's a wait after it as well because um, people that I've spoken to that have had miscarriages I've had many conversations since you know that most of them say once you have a miscarriage you just want to go again because you're desperate to get pregnant um, but that doesn't necessarily happen because your body you know it needs to heal um, and I was bleeding a lot as well so I had to you know let all that kind of uh, happen and um, we then went for a third round, which was unsuccessful. And the third round was the fully medicated round. Okay, If you don't know much about IVF, you can go natural, which is uh, essentially where they, they put the embryo in without medication, or you can go medicated. Now, medicated is, you know, the all-inclusive package. It's, uh, you know, injections in your stomach, it's uh, tablets, it's pessaries, um, uh, and with that, a lot of hormonal changes in your body, and um, you know, uh, you do feel like you're losing control of your body a bit as well because a lot's happening to it and going into it. Um, so yeah, the third round was fully medicated, um, and that was unsuccessful. Um, and again, we were really shocked, uh, me especially, because I thought, God, we've done all this, we've 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 gone up to you know a, a different level in terms of um, our approach and taking medication. It still didn't work, um, and. I mean, when you go through fertility and you do that pregnancy test and you're not pregnant, it feels like a loss because you go on such a journey to get there. And um, I have friends going through exactly the same thing right now. And, you know, I, I really just I really feel for them that two week wait, I swear, time stops 
the time between having your treatment and taking that test, it's like Bernard's watch. Someone's just stopped it. And, it, you know, it's like a year that you're waiting. And you, you put a lot of hopes on it. It's obviously, it's a very intrusive process. It's a very expensive process. And then you get to the day and it's a no, and it's just so demotivating. It's demotivating for you. And, and it's and it's really upsetting for both you and your partner because you both want it so much. Mm. Um, so that was, the, that that didn't, didn't happen. How did you cope with that? Did you get support from the hospital? Did you, I mean, obviously you would have supported each other, but what did you do? Not a lot, to be honest. Um, had some conversations with people that have been through the same thing. That's when I started really talking about it because I knew I needed support at that point. And that's when there were a lot of conversations coming out that made me realise actually this happens a lot. You know, I spoke to my own friends that have been on the journey, um, you know, people even in passing or clients, you know, that um, that I've got a good relationship. You speak to them like, yeah, I've been through that or I'm going through that. And then I thought, wow, this is, I'm not, I'm not unusual. This isn't a special kind of circumstance. This is happening to a lot of women. And it, you know, obviously all of that happened. I'm still working. um, But mentally, you're in a completely different place because you're thinking, I'm desperate to have a baby. I'm desperate to grow our family. What am I not doing right? Is my body failing? I want to do this for Maggie. I want to do it for Artie. I want to do it for us. There's so much going through your mind. Um, And then obviously a cocktail of hormones that are doing all sorts as well. Um, and yeah, it's it's just you you do need a lot of support, and you just don't always know where to go. And it, it's a little bit of a taboo subject to talk about, isn't it? Yes. Well, I think it is a taboo subject, and I think also it's not. Uh, you know, my sister had three miscarriages. She has three children and a stepdaughter. And uh, to be honest, um, I've spoken to her a little bit about this since. I remember one of the times she was at my house and, you know, her children are a bit younger than mine. So my two were probably both really little. In fact, I think it might have even been Sam's, like I talked about earlier, his christening. Um, it was definitely a sort of family thing. And she came downstairs and I remember her saying, oh, I think I'm having a miscarriage. And we sort of went, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. And then we carried on. And, you know, of course, I mean, we're I'm very close to her. We're a very close family. I just don't think we really talked about it enough. I don't think we really knew what to say. I don't think we we didn't know what to, I mean, it wasn't like we were going, oh, we better not talk about this. I just don't think I thought through what it must be feeling like, what it must be like losing, you know, it's, it's a baby, isn't it? It's a baby. And, and for you, you know, not getting pregnant from uh, from treatment is is not quite the same, but it, it is still a lot of intervention. Whereas, you know, if you're not getting pregnant and you're trying naturally, if if, if, it, if it's not for very long, it's not too bad. But again, for people who just can't get pregnant, it's so difficult. And as you say, you know, I think when you work for yourself, and same in businesses, because you, you don't necessarily have the conversation, but like you said, oh, I carried on working. But of course you carried on working because if you don't work, you're not going to get any money and also your business doesn't run. But just to do those things, that's hard, hey? Yeah, really hard. Um, and, you know, especially if you've got your own business or if, if you're leading a team, you you don't want the team to, to see anything that will concern them either. You know, you know, you've got a lot going on in your head. You want the ship to, to keep going smoothly, you know, down the river and... and 
I just thought, you know, I kind of didn't didn't say anything to them. And um, I'm lucky that I did have friends and I had a, co- a cousin as well that I could speak to um, that really, really helped. But what I had to do at that point is, you know, Maggie and I both agreed we need a break. We need to stop. We, we need your head to be clear and, and happy and do the things that make you happy. Um, so we went uh, on a staycation for a week in, in Southwold, which was lovely. Um, and before the fourth round of treatment, you know, we just really switched off together and, you know, had fun and um, did all the things that maybe we just hadn't been doing for the past few months because it had all been about fertility and, you know, raising our little human, but thinking about the next one. And um, I think that really helped that, you know, reset really to, to, to get us to the next part. Yes. Yes. If there are people listening to this and they think, and they know someone, maybe they've gone through it themselves, but particularly if they know somebody what could what could they do to help? What would have helped you? I think just for me, just talking about it. Um, I uh, you can feel like well, I certainly felt it, it was a very lonely experience because it's your body, your body hasn't done it. You, it, it does feel even though of course we're a partnership, it, it feels very much about you and. I think what really helps is just people being there and listening and, you know, asking questions about it and um, acknowledging that it is a loss. And, you know, and, and and I was very fortunate that in the end I did speak quite a lot about it. And now obviously I can't stop speaking about it because uh, we need to speak more about it. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think that really helps. And there's a lot of kind of great websites and forums as well. I never thought I'd be like a forum user, you know, like a mom's net. Um but there are times that you just need to hear from people like you that have gone through it and how they got through it and mentally what they did. And you need a bit of hope. You know, I think when you've when you've suffered a loss and listen, my journey is my journey. I've spoke to a lot of um, other women that, you know, they've had years of infertility and, and miscarriage and really kind of grueling processes. And, um, you know, it is that that hope is really important, you know, knowing that there are people that have come out the other side and it's been really successful and and then it's going to be okay because it can be hard to see a way out of it yes I can see that completely I mean one of the things that always strikes me is that you know there's, there's that there's that thing that people say is we don't tell anyone till 12 weeks because it's not sort of safe until then and I always used to think well what a weird thing to do because if I lost a baby, and, and unfortunately, I, I, I've never had a miscarriage, so I can only, I can hear and empathise, it's not something I've been through. But I was like, well, if I lose a baby, I'm going to feel awful. So why would I only tell people if everything's okay, when I might need help with not? And I wonder whether there's a little bit of, you know, because there is this, you wait till 12 weeks till you talk about it, we're not helping ourselves as women. Yeah, uh, yeah, I completely, completely agree with that. Um, it's almost like the reason we don't tell anyone until 12 weeks is to avoid any uncomfortable conversations about what we might be going through if we do suffer a loss, um, which is absurd, um, yeah. isn't it? Because, you know, if you if you and your partner do suffer that loss, you, you need support from your workplace, your friends. And because, you know, even um, so obviously I'm pregnant now and. Um, I was sat at my desk eight weeks pregnant and I was still on a lot of IVF meds at this point. So I was on IVF meds till I was 16 weeks. Um, uh, and I sat at my desk. I was really tired. That first trimester was like a sucker punch. You know, I'd 
had the work nausea sickness you know the, the full suite of symptoms and um it was fine though you know it was uh, I was just really, really happy to be where I was and I remember sitting at my desk and I was just shattered and I couldn't even smell something without feeling sick and I thought you know I'm just going to tell the team you know I'm, I, I, I want to kind of practice what I preach and said listen guys I'm pregnant I'm eight weeks pregnant and they were over the moon and and um, I explained to them how I was feeling and you know what I'd been through and you know and and that was just like a weight was lifted I don't have to put on this kind of face I don't have to pretend to be you know okay if I'm not feeling okay and I'm very lucky I work for myself so you know I, I, I can there is a lot of push and pull when it comes to my working day but I thought imagine if I was in a big company right now yeah and I had a massive workload and I was feeling really sick and also really anxious because the first 12 weeks, it is a very anxious time, especially if you've suffered loss before, because you're, you're hoping and praying that everything goes okay. And I just wondered, how how do other women do it at this time? Like, I, I can't imagine, like, having a poker face for all that. and you're so right. It's so ridiculous because the time actually when you need the help and support is the first 12 weeks when you feel ill or tired. Once you get to 12 weeks, actually, not for everyone, but most people feel so much better. And by the end, people can tell that you're pregnant. So, you know, we we, we psychologically, we can see what's happening. But it's, it's a very odd thing. It's just, you know, when I, all through my life, but, you know, my mum, because she's like this, lovely and gorgeous, but she always goes, you know, if, if you, when we were young, like you meet a boyfriend, well, don't get too excited. You know, don't, don't yeah. give too much of yourself because you'll be really hurt. I'm like literally going to be really hurt if it doesn't work out. So I might as well give my all because I'm only going to be fractionally less upset if it doesn't work out. And it, and it's those sort of things, isn't it, that we've heard, we've grown up with, that now I just think we need to question. And I'm not sure that they make any sense. Yeah, uh, there, there was a lot of that for me in the first in the first few months. Let's say for my family, but you just hear it generally because a few people in your network do find out that you're pregnant and or you know don't tell anyone to do 12 weeks and um you know people would say congratulations obviously you know see what happens in the first 12 weeks and that really does not help when you're pregnant because all you're thinking about is bringing a baby into the world and you've got this baby growing inside you and you love them from day dot okay like you're they're in you and you think you know and when someone's like oh congratulations but i'm saying it cautiously because we'll see what happens and it, the anxiety just goes through the roof and 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 yeah. because we can't talk about loss like we don't talk about loss um well I, so I certainly haven't had the experience of that in the workplace in the first trimester much so uh yeah it's not normalized and who's it helping like you said it's not helping women or their partners um and it's not helping the workplace because you know, you'd be absolutely devastated to think there's somebody working with you or for you that's going through this and they feel they can't talk to you about it and you can't support them. No one wants that. No, 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 absolutely, absolutely. So um, when is your baby due? The 5th of Jan. Um, so I'm aiming for New Year's Eve, but we'll see what happens. I absolutely love that. I love that. Yes, my daughter was the 14th of Jan. That was okay. close enough to Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, oh, that's lovely. And then how do you work out who looks after the children? What's your what's your childcare scenario? So um, as Mags and I both work for ourselves, there's no maternity leave. And that's something that um, it, it, it's a reality when you're on your own business. It's something that you accept. And also, I, you know, I love my business. I, I love working. But 
Um, you do, there are moments where you think, oh God, a year would just be so useful right now to, to just have nothing else to think about. But um, you work with what you've got. And um, what M- Maggie and I do is, you know, we'll, um, we'll split days in the week where she'll have baby for one or two days. I'll have baby for one or two days. We'll bring family members into support. Um, and we'll build our work around it and make sure that business as usual can tick along. And we did it really well with Artie. It, it really, really worked. Really good partnership there. So I'm confident that uh, it'll be the same again this time. Oh, how lovely. How lovely. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it, that it, it is one of the challenges of working for yourself, that you just don't, you know, you don't get the structured maternity leave that you do, you know, if you, if you do work in a big corporation, um, like you say, I think there's, there's some lovely flexibility to that. Um, you know, I, because I've run my own businesses for so long, you know, I, I remember doing a Women's Day event one time, actually just after I'd sold my business, and everyone was asking the questions about, you know, what do you have to miss? And they all, all the women went, of course, I couldn't go to every sports day and I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. And I was like, okay, I never missed a sports day. Mm-hmm. And... I directed the school play for my daughter when she was young. And, you know, of course, I couldn't do everything. I didn't pick them up from school every day. But I did a lot because I created a business that enabled us to do that. Um, so I think, you know, to your point, there are some big ups, but there are some challenges as well. And I think maybe, and you're obviously working on this, having boundaries is hard enough anyway as an entrepreneur. But I think when you have children as well, creating those boundaries becomes even more key doesn't it oh yeah it does and it, it did take me a good six months of arty to to understand that if you're with baby you're with baby if you're working you're working you cannot do the two at the same time absolutely impossible and actually those boundaries of you know this is when i'm going to work and you know me and maggie are very good at tapping and even in the evening it just really helps and um yeah and like you said the ups already are paying off for me you know I can pick him up from nursery I can um you know uh when what happened a couple of weeks ago oh it was when it was really when it was really hot that was it the nursery closed well I just brought him to the office and you know the the, the team all tapped in we're playing with him it was great and it was just it was just so good to know that I could do that and um you know it's it's nice to know that Hopefully I'm creating the culture that others could do that too if they want to bring, yes. bring their children in. Yes, and I think it is easier now. We work in a hybrid way. I think for for me, even though I sold Oyster Catchers a long time ago, uh, and let's reset works in a very virtual way because it was created during COVID, but um, the Oyster Catchers team were always used to working virtually. So, you know, they've always worked in that sort of way. Um, and I And I think we created that culture partly because... You know, I couldn't be there the whole time. I was a single mum for for a lot of the time of it uh, growing. And Peter, my business partner, had a very structured working environment because he loved that. He loved being in the office. Um, But actually, we created a a lovely culture, I think, um, where it it had that flexibility. And actually, it wasn't just about mums and dads having that time. It was about anyone being able to work in a way that suited them. Oh, absolutely it's just productivity at the end of the day isn't it and it, it works differently for everyone um and yeah hopefully things will ch- continue to change not just for small businesses like mine but ac- across the workplace um but it does all start with with being able to talk about the first bit I think and and making yeah making the whole journey of fertility and pregnancy and um and also unfortunate 
you know, um, circumstances like loss and, and, and bereavement throughout the process, which we know um, a lot of people do go through, like just normalising those conversations. So, you know, I think that would actually help people then normalise what happens when the child does come because, you know, I, it, it's just something that I've had such um, few conversations about when I was working for bigger companies and I suspect that's still the case now. Yes, yes. Well, I think... Hopefully, this conversation uh, has has helped a little bit on that journey. Um, you know, you're you're kind of you've spoken to a lot of people. Are you, are you creating a community where people can talk together, or are you just trying to get this out into the into the world, into the working environment, to encourage people to talk a bit more about it? Yeah, so um, I'm very fortunate to be part of the All Futures Network, and. Um, I just put a note on there and said, guys, this is what I've been through. And, um, you know, I'd love to open a conversation about it because it just feels like it's not spoken about. I wasn't really expecting any responses. And there must have been 10 or 15 people get back to me, all with different stories about, um, you know, not just kind of a miscarriage, but, um, you know, uh, one lady lost a child. Um, one lady was suffering with secondary uh, infertility. Uh one lady um had been trying for five years um and we then kind of started talking about well what are the workplace how the workplace supporting you and that was really varied um some people said actually I've, I've got a really good relationship with my manager I can talk to them and others were saying this is just not spoken about at all like I've got no one to speak to it's just it is such a closed off subject in in a, a corporate environment um and that's when I the kind of each started to get a bit stronger. And I thought, I'd love just to start a conversation. I think this is where it started, Suki. Like, just being honest about my experience, just talking about it, normalising it. Um, and, I, yeah, I'd love it to progress to to a stage where actually we're talking to companies, we're, we're showcasing different stories, and we're getting them to think, you know, what's in our policies? What's in our training? How, what do we understand as individuals, male or female? Like, what do we understand about it? Um, because it, I mean, it starts with education, doesn't it? And the, and the more stories, the more real stories that come out, the more people could think, actually, yeah, that sounds awful. And I can totally see why you think that or would need that. And we need to be better at this. And in the same way we have with menopause and, you know, EDI, these are growing conversations, but I think fertility and, um, you know, women's health needs to be a big part of that. I completely agree. And I think, and, and also the impact on a man, if he's part of that kind of situation as well, because I think that's probably an even less frequent conversation yeah. for, for them, because, you know, they're, they're often one step removed. And, that, and then I know from a number of men who've been through a similar experience that it's so difficult for them as well. So, you know, for us, having a culture where people are kind where they're open where they're where they're having moments to talk um i think it comes back to the not just asking somebody are they okay but asking maybe twice yeah and um, asking asking deeper questions about it as well in the right environment and because you can have a very quick surface level conversation can't you about something like this and how you doing i'm here to support you but you know i think you can deepen that compassion with a real understanding of what what the issues might they might be facing and to your point about partners um interesting we're updating our policies at the moment um and it, as you can imagine it includes all things around fertility and um uh, and and support there 
Um, and I was looking what the what's the standard kind of um, written policies across companies, and a lot of them say you know the the female the the mother uh, you will get kind of paid appointments up to six hours an appointment, um, and the partner or father uh, whichever it may be, um, they will be given time off unpaid, and I thought goodness that's I mean that says it all doesn't it right like you know it it doesn't matter what your um circumstances whether you're you know going through fertility or you know maybe surrogacy with somebody else or adoption whatever it might be you're doing it as a partnership and you know I I can completely see I think you know men need the same support they have to be they have to be there and they're present and they feel it all as well so I think that's a really important part of the conversation yeah absolutely absolutely well look thank you so much thank you for opening up and talking to me about several taboo subjects today that uh, we don't tend to talk about so uh, and just for being really open and honest but also some real practical things you know I think if you're listening and you have an HR responsibility please go and have a look at that policy because you might just have not looked at it with this kind of lens um and if you, you know, are in your team and you know that perhaps somebody is trying for a baby, just maybe just have a bit of a deeper conversation. And certainly I know from talking to you now, um, just to think a little more carefully, to ask a little bit more uh, and to be, as you say, a bit more, to have a, a greater depth of compassion for, for anyone going through this. Thank you, Suki. It's been it's been really good to to chat about it. Hopefully, the first conversation of many. And and yes. yeah, if if any if any people um are listening to this, thinking, you know, oh, this is what I'm going through. Just sending you all the love and positivity and hope, and just know that a lot of people have been there, are there right now, and you know, uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and I hope there will be for you too. Yeah, thank you very much. And we'll put some links at the end of this uh, so that if you do need some help and support, you know perhaps where you might want to go. Uh, thank you very much. Lovely to speak to you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network.